Amen. You may be seated. Let's continue our worship by worshiping through hearing the Word of God read and preached. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Isaiah, as some call it. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 2. As you turn there this morning, let me remind you of something that you do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. There's a Latin word that, uh, that's credo from which we derive our word creed. I believe we're given opportunity in the worship of God's people, of our sovereign God, we're given the privilege of confessing our faith, professing it, saying it out loud, that, that we can hear one another, saying it out of gratitude in our heart unto the Lord. Uh, creeds. Creeds are wonderful gifts to the church whether it's the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or whether we take it from Scripture itself like we did today, creeds. Creeds are, are wonderful to say. But let me say this. Creeds will get harder for us to say. Creeds will get harder for us to say publicly. Creeds will become dangerous for us to say publicly. And when they do, and when that time arrives, and it's a lot closer to me than I ever thought it would be, when that time arrives, who of us will say them? Who of us will even say them within these four walls for fear there might be somebody here that goes out and tells who of us will say them publicly, in public places? I'm often struck, and I, I really shouldn't be, but I still am for whatever reason. I'm, I'm often struck by how the cultural and historical context of an ancient people seem in, in so many ways like our very own context, minus our modern gadgets and minus what C.S. Lewis called our historical snobbery, and that we think we are so much further advanced than the ancients. Back before our Reformation series, we concluded our series through the book of 1 Samuel. And as we did, we concluded with the death of Saul and the rise of King David. Today, we begin an Advent series, and we begin it not in 1 Samuel, but we begin it in Isaiah. And when, we, and, and when we're doing so, we are, we are moving down the timeline by about 300 years. And we're going from King David to King Uzziah. We're going from one nation of 12 tribes with a king coming to the throne after God's own heart to that one small nation divided into two, Israel, the northern of the two, Judah, the southern of the two, Two tiny countries. And they're tiny in comparison, particularly to their neighbors. They're tiny in comparison to Egypt, to their south. They're tiny in comparison uh, to Assyria, to their north and northeast. And yet they're situated in what was then and still is today a supremely strategic location. They're at a crossroads. To their northeast, you have what we call the Near East, and that's the gateway to the Far East. 
to the, to the northwest, you have Asia Minor and what we know of as, as Europe. To their southwest, you have all of Africa. These two tiny nations are smack dab in the middle of the crossroads. They're situated in strategic, supremely strategic location. The, the very center of the known world of that day. And as inhabitants of two tiny countries in the center of the known world, they had an audacious creed. Their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the God. Their God was the great creator of all. Their God was the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And the inhabitants of the southern one of these two tiny nations, the inhabitants of Judah, could also add in their creed that their king was God's king set upon his holy hill as a vice regent. Now that was an audacious creed to profess and to confess from two tiny little nations. And yet, as audacious as it was, it was fairly easy to make that confession. It was fairly easy to say that creed during the long and fairly peaceful reign of one King Uzziah. Egypt's, Egypt's power was, was waning. Assyria's attention was turned to the, to the northeast. And Hezekiah, for the, I mean uh, Uzziah, for the most part reigned well. A long, peaceful reign, and the long, peaceful reigns of decent monarchs enable countries typically to prosper. I think of uh, Queen Elizabeth I. England of her day was, in a sense, in the crossroads of an age of exploration. And she reigned well, and she reigned for a long time, and England prospers amazingly financially, and in the realm of the arts. So much so we call it the Elizabethan Golden Age. Well, Judah is experiencing the Uzziah Golden Age. They're prospering. They're prospering. And, and when a nation prospers, and when a people prospers, it's a little bit easier to say audacious creeds. But, and you knew there was a but coming, but... What happens to this king, Uzziah? If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 6, go ahead and go there. It's a very famous passage, Isaiah 6. What, what, what happens to Uzziah? In the year that king Uzziah died, this long and successful king, Uzziah, he dies, as is the way of men. And tough and audacious creeds are, again, easy to confess in peace and prosperity. But what happens when your king dies? What happens when the beast to your north gets its act together, figures out its succession of rulers, handles the people that have been bothering them to their east? What happens when the beast to your north begins looking in your direction? And what happens when not only do you have the beast of the north looking at your direction, 
but also the prosperity that you've been experiencing is concentrated in a small group of elite. Prosperity was being experienced, for the most part, by the rich. Who, as one writer put it, who had little care for the, for the have-nots. Audacious creeds are easy to confess in peace and prosperity. But there comes times in the lives of nations when the rot within and the enemy without make saying such creeds harder and more dangerous. You see, though, the, the centuries separate us from the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Uzziah's day and Hezekiah's day, those centuries separate us, there's so much that unites us to them. What looms ahead of us, and when I say us, I mean the Church of the West, in the West, isn't that far different from what faced them. While our own sins are rotting out our witness, the ever-secularizing beast that's without intimidates us more and more openly. We aren't yet the church in China. Yet. Yet. What will we do when we are? Will we, will we confess that we believe that our God is the creator of the universe? Will we confess that we believe our God is the redeemer? Will we confess that our God is the king of kings and lord of lords? Will we unabashedly say Jesus is Lord with all the sort of implications such a statement brings when you've got a government that wants to be Lord? Or a culture. Implications like embarrassment now. It's no longer socially acceptable. Ridicule tomorrow. Harassment next week. Discrimination next month. Restrictions next quarter. And next year, who knows? Our creed, in other words, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but our creed, I suspect, is going to become harder and harder and harder and more dangerous to say. What will we say when it becomes that? The prophet Isaiah addressed a similar situation. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, kings of Judah. Uzziah would die, others would follow. Tensions within Judah are going to grow. They're going to become more intense. Israel, the northern counterpart of Judah, they're going to enter into a fateful rebellious alliance against the Assyrian overlords, and they would be crushed. And then there was just Judah. And Judah would then be tempted to form alliances with Egypt and form alliances with, with Babylon. 
And then in a seeming moment of Assyrian weakness, when Babylon was revolting in the east, good King Hezekiah says, now's the time. Let's revolt in the west. Sennacherib, the monarch of Assyria, put down the Babylonian revolt like that. And when he did, he then turned his sights on Judah. He swiftly moves in. Judah falls. He besieges Jerusalem. What would the inhabitants of Jerusalem do when Sennacherib's men at the walls, at the gates of Jerusalem, were declaring the great king, the king of Assyria, is here. And Jerusalem is at Sennacherib's mercy. How would the inhabitants of Jerusalem respond? What would they confess then? Would they say, that's a lie? For our king is the vice-regent of the king, and we're in the hands of the king and in his hands alone. Creeds can be hard and dangerous to say, especially when they seem to be crazy. Well, the prophet Isaiah would say it. Why? Because, you see, he had, he had been given a vision, had he not? He had seen the great king. He had seen the king of kings and lord of lords. We were in Isaiah 6 just a moment ago. Go back there again. I stopped way short. Here are these wonderful, familiar, beautiful, amazing words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah saw, he was given a glimpse, a vision of the glory of God himself, the king and the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of armies. But not only that, not only was he given a vision of Yahweh, but he was also given a vision concerning the people of God. You remember chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And that vision that he saw was to be then given to the people. So that not only would Isaiah say the creed, but so the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah would say the creed with him. That Yahweh was the king, the Lord of hosts. Not Sennacherib, Yahweh. And, and, and Yahweh, their God, was not a silent God. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, 
O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Judas' God was not silent. He speaks. And what a speech it was. What a vision was given from God. Given through this very real man, Isaiah. Given uh, in all kinds of ways. I mean, we have poetry. We, we, we have sermons. We, we have lawsuits. We, we have stories in the book of Isaiah. And all those were a part of this great and glorious and big. Did I say big? Really big vision. Really, really, really big. It begins with heaven and earth being called, being summoned to witness what was going on then, in that historical moment. That's where it would begin. But as you work your way through this beautiful book and you get to Isaiah 66, where does it end? It ends with this cosmos becoming the new heavens and the new earth. The vision Isaiah is given is a huge vision for all of time until what we know of as the second coming of Christ. You go from Uzziah and Jerusalem to a future king in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. Renewal on a massive scale. Wrongs righted. A sin-cursed world remade. And the big vision is very focused. I mean, it's sort of like when you're reading the book of Isaiah... It's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever seen that famous um, painting from the Italian Renaissance known as the School of Athens. If you've seen it, you recognize when you begin to look at it, your gaze is focused and it's brought to the center. And in the center, you have two men walking beside one another. And one of the men is pointing up. And one of the men is pointing down. And it dawns on you in that moment, aha moment, if you know what's going on. That is the school of Athens. Those are the two great ancient philosophers, Plato and Aristotle. Plato, the idealist, pointing up. Aristotle, the realist, pointing down. And you say, aha, I got it. Okay? Isaiah works in a similar fashion. As we read, we're thinking about Judah, we're thinking about Jerusalem, we're thinking about their adversaries, but our eyes are, are focused and they come and they're focused upon two individuals. The first one is given grand titles, messianic titles, royal titles. He is the great Messiah. The, oh, all kings were messiahs. They were anointed ones, but there was going to be one who was the Messiah. And so we see one figure, and it's the Messiah, the root of Jesse. And then there's another figure. And this other figure it's one that you wouldn't notice. There's nothing about him. Lovely. One who would suffer. One who would suffer cruelly. Who would be cruelly persecuted. Who would be killed. But then strangely raised and glorified. And the purposes of Yahweh would be in this one's hands. And then you have your aha moment by God's grace and you recognize the two figures are the one person, Jesus Christ. And so we have this big vision about a big salvation through a big Savior King. It was an audacious creed to say. And the entire book of Isaiah tells us this big vision. 
but like an overture at the beginning of, a, of an opera or a ballet or a musical, which gives all the tunes that are going to be played in the entirety of the piece. We have an overture. And that's chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 5, that tells us that whole scope, that whole big story in short space. Notice chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass when? In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, where would that be? The people of Jerusalem are thinking, oh, the house of the Lord, that's in Jerusalem. He's talking about us. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. Oh, we like the sound of that. Now, if you've been to the promised land, if you've been to Israel, yeah, Jerusalem is on a mountain, but it's not that impressive. Let me just tell you, it's not that big. I mean, it may be a little bit bigger than Mara Mountain, you know, over in Stanley County, but not much. It's not that big. And yet, Isaiah is saying, it's going to be the highest of the mountains. Higher than Mount McKinley. Higher than K2. Higher than Mount Everest. We're liking the sound of that. And shall be lifted above, up above the hills. And, oh, now we're really going to enjoy it. And all the nations, they're going to flow into it. They're going to come here. Not besieging us but coming into us. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. Oh, we like the sound of that. He's going to teach them our creed. That we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge. Oh, we like that. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Yeah, take that, Sennacherib. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We'll be the top nation. We'll have the highest mountain. And the nations are going to be judged. As they... Say, or used to say, right on. Preach it, brother. Preach it, Isaiah. Now it's an audacious creed for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to believe and to preach. But they liked it, if that's all there was to it. No doubt the inhabitants of, of, of Jerusalem would say, yeah, preach more. Let's go. We'll say it. We'll believe it. Let's do it. This big vision has to be really about those nasty, beastly pagans getting what was coming to them, right? Wrongs righted. When you're under pressure from an outside pagan world, that's what you want to hear. How dare they attack Judah? Surely that's what Isaiah is going to Uh, tell them that God had said. Well, the nations would be judged. He does tell them that in chapter 2, in verses 2 through 4. But Isaiah doesn't start there, does he? He starts somewhere else. He starts with a word of conviction. 
chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. The prophet, like all good prophets, told the truth about the children of God. He told them the truth about themselves. They were ungrateful. They were headstrong. They were rebellious children. Assailing Assyrians, they were at their door, not because of the sins of the Assyrians, they were at their door because of the sins of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. The sin in view is not the sin of those nasty pagans, causing us so much trouble. It's the sin of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. But what sort of sin? Is it left vague? Does the prophet just say, yeah, they're a bunch of sinners? Oh, yeah, okay, we get that. No. He spells it out. What were their besetting sins? Being outwardly religious. Coming and doing all the religious things. Checking all the religious boxes. And yet all the while, oppressing the poor, the widow, the orphan. How would God's people respond when their creed was a convicting creed? Creeds are not only hard to say when the forces of evil are arrayed against us. Creeds are hard to say when they convict us of our sin. Can we, brothers and sisters, be outwardly religious? Can we come and light Advent candles and sing Advent hymns and Christmas carols? Can we check the boxes? Yeah. And can we do so with little or no regard for the needy and the broken and the oppressed? Yeah. Was this just an Old Testament problem? Or do we all pass by Samaritans? Or no. Samaritans don't pass by. We do. If God could call his Old Testament people to care for the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, because he had liberated them out of Egyptian bondage, how much more can he call us who've been liberated and freed through the blood of the Lamb? How much more so can he call us to have pure and undefiled religion? Which is what, according to James? Caring for widows and orphans. Spirit, I'm glad you pray for widows today. It's a convicting word. But that convicting word, it, it, then, then it, something beautiful happens. He doesn't, Isaiah doesn't leave them there. Look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Says Yahweh, the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. From a convicting word to a word of grace, an offer of grace, here's grace. Will you receive it with your open hands? And how can this grace be offered to you? Well, this suffering servant would die in your place. But that wonderful offer of grace evidently wasn't taken by many. When you look at verses um, 21, chapter 1, 21 through the end of the chapter, it's a lament. From a word of conviction to a word of grace to a lament and a word about judgment. Evidently few of Isaiah's compatriots received the offer of grace. And so a word of judgment falls. But also within that word of judgment, there is a word of blessing. A word of blessing phrased in a call to repentance. Verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness but rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. And I just want you to notice all that comes before chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The inhabitants of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah needed to hear all that before chapter 2, 1 through 5. Yes, there's coming a great and glorious day when Christ will come and he will destroy all his and our enemies. That day is coming. But before it does, there's a day to be convicted of our sins. There's a day to receive this offer of grace. There's a day to repent and turn unto the Lord. And when we do, we are confessing an audacious creed. But in closing, it's more than just saying it. Chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us be convicted of sin. Let us receive this beautiful offer of grace. This table is going to make that offer to you yet again. Let us receive this offer of grace. Let us repent of our sin. Let us truly worship and then live in a way that matches that worship. Let us bless those in need. Let us wait upon the Lord. And as we wait upon the Lord, let's go ahead and get into practice. Let's beat swords into plowshares. Let us wait with Isaiah for the return of the Prince of Peace, at whose return the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the laws and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Holy Father, you give us these Sundays and the days in between as testimonies of your grace, opportunities to be convicted of our sins, opportunities to be convicted of hollow religion, to be convicted of checking off spiritual boxes, religious boxes, and, not, and yet not living as those who are recipients of deep and glorious grace. Help us to use this time to be convicted of our sin and to receive the glorious grace that is offered to us in the blood of Jesus. Help us by his empowerment to repent and turn away from our sins to following after him afresh anew. And help us, as we follow after Christ, to wait with the prophet Isaiah for that great and coming day when swords shall be beat into plowshares. Help us to begin doing that very thing now in the way we treat one another, in the way we treat our neighbors, whether that's online or on our streets or in the stores, may we truly be those who are the followers of the Prince of Peace. For we ask this in his name. Amen.